0: Hi, everyone. This is AJ Woodhams, host of the War Books podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Uh, Really excited today to have Scott Carney on the show uh, for his book, The Vortex, A True Story of History's Deadliest Storm, An Unspeakable War and Liberation. Um, Co-written with Jason Micklian, who unfortunately could not join us today, but uh, we got Scott here. Scott is an investigative journalist and anthropologist, so as the author of the New York Times bestseller, What Doesn't Kill Us, uh, which is about um, ice bathing. Is, that, that, yeah,
1: is that right? I'm a professional bather. I mean, most people forget, <laughs> forget the bather. other things. I bathe professionally. <laughs> well, that's really cool. Um, he spent six years living in South
0: Asia as a contributing editor for Wired and writer for Mother Jones, NPR, Discover Magazine, Fast Company, Men's Journal, and many other publications.
1: Scott, how are you doing today? Good. So it's so funny that that's in my bio because several of those magazines don't exist anymore. They were big and now they don't exist. But yes, uh, you know, I'm doing great. It's, it's really fun to be here.
0: So I just interviewed this uh, author named George Black and he wrote this very heavy book about Vietnam in Agent Orange. Very serious topic. But in his bio, I mentioned how he's written for many publications. And he's like, you know, I've also written for a magazine called Fly Fisherman Magazine.
1: Uh, so it's the,
0: the range of the authors that I have on this show.
1: is It was uh, always my dream to write for Cat Fancy, and then they went out of business. And now it's Catster. <laughs> I mean, it's rough. I don't know. My dream is Is that really true? Loyal. Is that? Is, yeah, is yeah it? Cat Fancy is gone. Cat Fancy is gone. It has now been bought it's by a company Catster. called Catster. Yeah.
0: Wow. Well, speaking of new things I've learned from you, um, <laughs> really excited to have you on the show. Um, so this is my... 16th episode uh, for the War Books podcast. And a lot of the topics we talk about, uh, World War II, Vietnam, um, the American Revolution, uh, yeah. the
1: usual suspects. Maybe some but... civil war gets in there too. What's that? Know? Maybe some civil war will show up. Yeah, like I get I've, it, had, the, I've had,
0: I've the had a guest about uh, a fiction author writing about the Civil War, but right. nobody has come on here to talk about the Bangladesh Liberation War. Right. So this is going to be a really cool uh, interview. Um, I mean, it's so a war hopefully. that most
1: people don't even know happened. I mean, you know, it it it, it was terrible. Uh, it had vast geopolitical uh, implications. The entire world almost was was reduced to a cinder from a nuclear conflict, and yet, yeah, it is completely absent from the the broader imagination. Now, if you live in South Asia, you know about this war. But yeah, the implications of it for Americans I mean, Americans were heavily involved in the in the Bangladesh Liberation War and the way I like to talk about it. And, and, and it's funny because I know that no one listening has any idea about this. But the only reason that you and I are doing this podcast that we are even alive at all is because of a few scrappy fighters in Bangladesh who took the city of Dhaka. And if they hadn't done that, we'd all be dead. So everyone listen it. to this podcast because it's important well uh, we will get to that towards the end of the interview but wow what
0: a what what a thing to open with <laughs> well tell me first um, so you co-wrote this book with uh, with Jason Mickley and mm-hmm. what made you two want to write about this
1: topic so Jason and I have been friends since grad school uh, I you know I was getting my PhD in anthropology he was an undergrad uh, and I switched out of of my, you know, the academic track to become an investigative journalist. And he uh, actually did go on to become a pretty well-renowned professor. And, you know, because we were friends for so long, we, we wanted to sort of come, like we wanted to, you know, as you get to an adulthood, you don't really hang out with each other as much anymore. And we decided to do stories together starting about 15 years ago for like magazines and like Foreign Policy, Sice Journal, different, different sort of like respectable magazines. And I had been a foreign correspondent in India for yeah at the, you know like six years, and Jason was living in Oslo, where he's a professor at the University of Oslo and one of our stories, which was for foreign policy magazine, we were on the border of India and Bangladesh on the Bangladesh side because this a 13-year-old girl named um, Falani Kutani had been shot by an Indian border guard as she crossed over the fence. And her, her body laid on the fence for like five days. And the, the two sides were negotiating how to remove the body. And her corpse being there on the fence became this national symbol of the brutality of India against Bangladesh. Because what had happened is, is India built a wall around all of Bangladesh? So you know, you think about the southern border wall in the United States, the one around Bangladesh. And Bangladesh only has two neighbors: it's Myanmar and and India. It's it's guarded by um, border guards who have shoot to kill orders for people who want to cross. And it is incredibly violent. And we wanted to know, well, why did were they why did they build this fence? Why was that is that there at all? And it all tracks back to a storm that happened in 1970, where millions of of climate refugees, essentially storm refugees, fled across the border into India and destabilized the whole region. And that what Indian politicians at the time were saying is that we need to build a wall because the next time Bangladesh gets hit by a storm, we're going to be inundated again by refugees. And we need to stop that before it happens. Now, I don't believe a wall is a great way to deal with climate change, right? It's it's not really going to stop people, but it it became this interesting flashpoint. And as we, you know, and we decided to dig in and find out the story of this and oh, what a doozy it became. Yeah. And so the Bangladesh
0: liberation war is also known as the world's first climate war. Yes. Which I think, you know, that's, to me that sounds very scary and i think you know mm-hmm. your your book is an excellent example of how scary that can get let's let's first talk about bangladesh i'm really ashamed to say before i read your book you very helpfully included a map in the front <laughs> of the
1: book yeah right
0: but if somebody had asked me to point to a map of the world and point at bangladesh i wouldn't know where to point Sure. Maybe just give our listeners who are, who were in the same boat uh, as me, where where is is Bangladesh? What's its what's its geography?
1: Yeah. Well, let's even make this more complex. Why don't we? So so Bangladesh, the country of Bangladesh, the the Bangladesh we all know and love. If you think about India as like sort of a triangle with an arm hanging off of it, right? Sort of like on its when you're facing it on stage right there's this arm hanging off and Bangladesh is nestled in the armpit of India. And you know, Pakistan's on the other side now. But when this book begins, there is no Bangladesh. Instead, that little postage stamp piece of land that we now call Bangladesh was called East Pakistan. And Pakistan, the one that we all know and love now, was West Pakistan. Because when the British broke up India in 1947, you know, Gandhi's movement, there was a militant movement in India. India had been a a colonial fiefdom for a while. The British broke it up and they did it all along religious lines. Now, the, the, the Ganges River Delta, which is Bengal, had a lot of Muslims in it. And, you know, Punjab and Islamabad, Karachi, all those areas had a lot of Muslims in it. And the British, in their absolute wisdom, <laughs> broke it up and and, set, and had the country divided. So Pakistan was had both eastern and western wings, even though they weren't touching and they had India in the middle. Now, you pro- your listeners probably have some vague idea that India and Pakistan do not get along. You know, and there's a long history to that but essentially the british had a divide and rule ideology where they they divided religious communities to fight against each other so that they could take control so when Beng- so when, East, when pakistan came into existence um pakistan is actually not a word it's an acronym it's I know- learned that
0: too i had i had no idea about that mm-hmm. yeah tell us what's and, and what's the acronym
1: i'm going to butcher it now because uh, I, I can't actually remember all of the provinces, but P uh, P is for Punjab. I think A might be for Afghan. K is Kutch and Pakistan, right? But there's no B in Pakistan. It is an acronym without the B. And so all of the the locus of power in Pakistan was in Islamabad and Karachi. That they had all of the political power. They also they spoke Punjabi and the Urdu and these sort of North, North South Asian languages. And, and just Bengalis... to kind of repeat, these these two
0: East Pakistan and West Pakistan are really far apart. You know, this is not like an East Germany, West Germany. Like there's like a line that goes through. Yeah. There's I don't know how many miles, but you know, basically the width of the modern day top of, of India.
1: Yes. Um, it's a huge distance. Huge administrative craziness for like a new country to suddenly try to administer these two parts. And what you need to know is west pakistan the punjabi speaking bihar uh, pakistan treated the bengali speaking pakistan like a colonial fiefdom they just extracted money they're like we don't care about those uh, bengalis they were they they considered them inferior a uh, lot of racism and uh, casteism and the in the various issues there and the there was always consternation in East Pakistan, the Bengali-speaking area, that they didn't want to be ruled uh, by a foreign, you know, essentially a foreign power, and uh, and yeah, it was a very bad situation. Now, India and Pakistan had had several wars by 1970, and and there were fronts on both sides of India. And then, when this book starts, right, we we know there's tension. We know that there's problems in East Pakistan, and the way this we is tell around story, 1970, really. around 1970, yeah. And, and the way the book starts is we we actually write this in a narrative nonfiction way, right? This is not a, a a history book in 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 the sense that we give you a lot of dates and times and and historical facts that that move us through the, the narrative. We try to create characters out of the people which is very hard to do because these are all real people based on interviews, but we, t- we write it in the way of a novel. Cause we want to put you in the, yeah. the center of everything. And you and know
0: I, I, we- well, I was just saying, I, and I, I enjoyed that style because you, it, you know, it puts a real like human uh, you get a real human connection to these, these events that are taking place.
1: Yeah. And it's very hard to write this way. I would not recommend this to other writers. Because it is like orders of magnitude more difficult um, to do it this way, but it is very engaging. Um, and and we sort of begin the narrative. One, we talk about a football game between in the, uh, the Soviet Union, and the the and the Pakistan national team. And one of the heroes in this book is a guy named Hafezuddin Ahmad, who is the like the Pele, the 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 David Beckham of Pakistan, right? And and he is the best football player around. And every time he gets the ball and they're playing the Russian, the Soviets at that time, every time he gets the ball, the crowd goes crazy. And they're in Dhaka, which is the capital of East Pakistan. And he gets the ball, the crowd goes crazy and he kicks it over to his for, you know, front, the forward. And, and he was a Punjabi. So from the other side of Pakistan, and the crowd goes silent. And this happened all the time in uh, East Pakistan at the time because they didn't we would never cheer for a Punjabi, but they would cheer for their own people. And they would they would rather cheer for a Russian than a Punjabi. And so that sort of sets the tension that we're talking about in this in this book, right? You know, we have yeah. real hard racial divides. And then Hafez becomes turns into a very, very important character in this right. in this in this story.
0: Well talk real quick about just kind of <clears throat> politically so obviously the, uh, the Great Bola Cyclone is, <laughs> if I'm pronouncing that correct, is the, um, that's like really kind of the, the main event or maybe the first main event of this book, terrible cyclone, what we call hurricane, of course, in the U.S. Talk a little bit right before um, this cyclone hits politically, um, what is the situation like in, in Pakistan?
1: East so Pakistan there,
0: in West Pakistan.
1: We are on the verge of the very first national election in Pakistan. So since 1947, Pakistan has been ruled by military dictators. And this new military dictator gets basically assigned the top post of president. And he's given one mission, which is to run the first free and fair election ever. And so everyone's going to vote and and they're pretty sure it's all going to go to the... The, it's called the PPP, which is the, the, East, the West Pakistan sort of main normal political establishment. Um, but they're going to run a real fair election. Uh, and this is, the election is going to happen in December. And in November, we have this enormous gyre. Uh, coming up the Bay of Bengal, uh, which is a, a, a just a very very powerful cyclone, it's picked up by um, the very first weather satellite, picks it up coming to the coming I mean, there. There are emergency transmissions from ships that are that are getting caught in this cyclone, and India hears this the the radio distress calls, but they're an enemy with Pakistan, so they don't share any information. Uh, and there's just a number of of just like maybe you, maybe you could call them coincidences, maybe you could call them planned genocidal ideas, but the messages never ultimately get to the people living on the coast. So this storm smashes into this low-lying, very wide and flat river delta where the average um, above sea level land height is about one meter, so about three feet. And the storm surge comes in, which is 20 feet high. And so we're talking the only people who survive are the people who can climb up to the top of palm trees. Uh, And we have islands where 90% of the population is wiped out completely. The, the estimates that we have for the number of deaths from that cyclone is about 500,000 people just from this cyclone. It is a watery catastrophe. Um, we've never had anything like this in America. It's like sort of having, at that time, the entire city of Miami disappearing. Uh, and, then, and then what would the political fallout be from that? Now, if you had a very callous leader who hated the people of Florida uh, in, in office, that leader might use this to their to what they saw as their political advantage and decide not to give aid because we don't like those people, which is exactly what Yahya Khan, who is the president, did. He 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 withheld all of the aid to these low-lying regions. And, and I, there are some presidents in the American recent past who might do similar tricks with aid, but it, this was at an order of magnitude that you cannot imagine. Uh, and then we have cholera epidemics. We have all of starvation. Uh, it is just a catastrophe, but all of this is happening just two weeks before na- the first free and fair national election that Yaya Khan thought he had in the bag. Well, it just so happens, and he could, and this is very interesting about Yahya Khan, he could have put his finger on the scale and be like, we're just going to make this not a fair election. We're going to make this look fair, but it's not going to be fair. He could have done that, but to his great and lasting credit, he didn't. And it was a landslide against his party. It's, you know, if you think about the American example, it would be sort of like the Democrats getting 70% of the electorate, right? Like a huge landslide to the other side. In fact, in considering divided Pakistan at the time, Bengal was more populous than than the Punjabi sections. And it actually would have moved the, the locus of power from the colonial masters to the colonial subjects. It would be sort of like moving Washington DC to Puerto Rico. You know, it is uh, a very, very different change in power. And then Yahya Khan says, well, that was an error. <laughs> You know, we, we have this big national election. He realizes he lost, but then there's the interregnum, right? There's the time when you transfer power to the um, to the, the other party, and that's when he starts putting his finger on the scales.
0: And Yahya Khan is actually so he has a, a good relationship with, with Richard Nixon.
1: This is right. Talk a little
0: bit about the, the relationship between between America and Pakistan at this time.
1: So now remember, this is in the middle of the Vietnam War. Okay, so we have Vietnam raging um, not so far away from, from, Bank- from East Pakistan at that time. And Nixon wants to make his mark on history. And Vietnam is not really the place where he's going to win a lot of friends, right? And he has this idea that he wants to open up diplomatic relations with China, which had at that point been a closed economy, right? This is Mao Zedong. This is like the, the, the height of the Cold War. Soviets are there and he doesn't want this other domino to fall and he needs an entree to Mao. Well, it just so happens that the only person in the entire world who is friendly with both Mao and Nixon is a guy Named Yahya Khan, Uh, and this is because in the war—that's 1965 war between India and Pakistan—which I'm sure you'll do another podcast on—is America supplied arms to um, actually both sides, but you know supplied arms to Pakistan, and then there was a trade embargo against Pakistan, and then and then Nixon found ways to circumvent the trade embargo to arm his pal Yahya Khan because he liked him, and you know they had a history as well because. Nixon had traveled to Pakistan, you know, when he was a senator, Congress and I forget what was Nixon before. I think he was a senator.
0: I th- yeah, I think so.
1: And you know, but he had traveled to Pakistan uh, Pakistan had met Yahya Khan and was friendly with the Pakistanis and for some reason he hated Indians. Like he just really didn't like India and he really liked Pakistan. And his buddy Yahya Khan offered to to conduct a secret mission to to open up relations uh with Pakistan and this this culminated with him sneaking Kissinger into into China on like a secret flight to you know meet with Zhao Enlai and and you know sort of begin the opening of trade relations which Nixon is considered a genius for like, he's still today considered like one of the reasons why China opened up its economy. And we have this amazing trade partner now, but it was all in trade. And this is like sort of one of the linchpins of this book is that that relationship funnels a lot of American weapons into Pakistan. And when this election hit, you know, falls over to the other side, Nixon continues to funnel tank parts, Artillery parts, jets, and uh, and munitions in general into Pakistan, and and uh, and Yaya then f- starts sending ca- troop transports from Karachi to Dhaka, and in the interregnum of mm, what what with interregnum I think I think it was like two months. My my timeline's a little maybe may, may a little off. On the day that transition of power is supposed to happen instead of handing over the reins to a guy named Mujib, who's, you know, their Abraham Lincoln figure, he arrests him and then starts the genocide called Operation Searchlight, where they, the orders are to kill everyone.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll talk about, so talk about the war. So it's, it's the officially known as uh, Bangladesh Liberation War, uh, correct? But yeah, I mean, you, you
1: call it Operation Searchlight in the book. So the Operation Searchlight is the genocide. That's the internal attack against, there's no war, right? So when when this starts, it's, it's a surprise attack on an undefended um, uh, uh, Bengali population. You know, they round up all the, the there aren't very many Bengali u- army units anyway. Um, there are some border security forces, there's some police, there's some paramilitary. And like, there's like, a small a handful of actual Bengali units. Everyone else is Punjabi, and they go in. And right before this, they disarm or they attempt to disarm everyone that they can, every Bengali with a gun, essentially. And then they round them up and they whoever they can they bring into you know several central stockades and just start executing all the Bengali-speaking yeah. soldiers. And-
0: horribly brutal and violent. Yeah, and, uh, we, and we
1: have all of these witness, I, you know, eyewitness accounts of like of, of standing outside the bunkers, the the um, not bunkers, the word is uh, cantonments, and just hearing one bullet after another going off as they massacre all of the Bengali soldiers because they don't want any resistance. And then when that's done, they go after the intellectuals, the politicians, anyone who could run a country. They want them dead because the idea is decapitate the Bengalis. And what Yaya Khan, his quote was, kill a million of them and the rest will eat out of our hand, and which is a you know pretty brutal dictator thing to say. Uh, and so he attempts to do this. Uh, of course, he's doing this with American weapons. Um, there's a news blackout. It's not like today where you can just tweet, hey, we're being attacked. You actually have to fly out Of the country in order to get information out to the world and it's very hard and he's uh, he's quite successful at squelching this and nixon and kissinger are right on board they are helping you know the american embassy is run by a guy named archer blood who sends out this telegram being like oh my god there's a genocide going on we're seeing everything happen right in front of us the bodies are everywhere in the streets you know uh we have to America has to stand up for its values. You know, we have to stand up for our marketing materials. And Nixon basically has this guy removed, uh, and and uh, and they call it like a, a civil unrest uh, that is being put down by the good Pakistanis. Uh, and this is, you know, sort of not very shocking for Nixon to be yeah. doing these things.
0: Well, talk talk a little bit more about kind of the scale of the of the violence. You know, how many how many people are killed?
1: So the. The estimates vary widely. You know, it's not like, they weren't like the Nazis who had like records of every person they killed, right? It wasn't that sort of genocide. Even though Yahya Khan did fight the Nazis and, and spoke spoke quite highly of them, this the estimates are you know really difficult. So we don't even have censuses really of the existing population. So birth certificates for everyone they're not really there. But the estimates are three million people died in this genocide over the course of nine months.
0: I mean, and that's I. I mean, that's incredible.
1: It's insane. And
0: to I mean to to think too that you know, obviously this is the big theme of your book, but the the cyclone is what has kind of put this all into action. Uh, I'm I'm wondering if you can just like talk about that first domino, which is the cyclone, and mm-hmm. just kind of like connect the dots on how that cyclone led to the genocide.
1: Sure. Well. Obviously, there was underlying political tension. This goes back at least to the origin of Pakistan, but also we can go into the medieval period. So there are tensions that exist and unrest that exists because history happens. But the cyclone is this sort of random weather event and it wasn't caused by climate change. I make a climate change argument in the end of the book, but the cyclone was a cyclone at that time. It happened to hit at a very vulnerable moment and it became the catalyst for violence and it became a political tool by the West Pakistan authorities first what their idea was hey this got rid of votes if we get rid of more votes that's going to help it was a very cold and calculated logic you know more dead people fewer people voting on the bengali side and what we see are weather events that become political tools, and in in my opinion, the real danger of climate change isn't losing beachfront property or crops or salinization. It's the way that humans respond to climate change, and uh, and respond to these weather events because they become opportunities and inflection points where everything changes. So the storm happens, which let, hits the next domino where the election flips to the other side completely, which then triggers the genocide where, you know, 3 million people are killed, which then triggers an influx of people to flee to India because they don't want to get killed. And there's only really one neighbor. And then India is overloaded with refugees. And they're like, oh my God, what are we doing with all of these refugees? And what would happen if, if 2 million Mexicans showed up in San Diego? People are not going to be psyched right in America. And that's what's happening here. They're all in Calcutta. And India says, well, we're going to invade our neighbor to to liberate them. And India's a Soviet ally, right? This is the Cold War. This is one side versus India's a Soviet ally. Pakistan's an American ally. India, well, actually what happens is uh, Yaya Khan in his uh, uh, terrible... military planning decides to attack india first and launches a, a whole bunch of jet attacks on runways in rajasthan and uh and agra which are you know the cap um you know on the north uh uh west side of india and does no damage at all basically puts some potholes in runways but it's the it is the <laughs> impetus for the invasion uh indira gandhi says like thank you yaya khan and then invades both sides and india's army is huge i mean india crushes Pakistan in any conventional military conflict. And they invade, and then Yaya Khan says, We need more weapons from from America and China. And he reaches out to his allies. And America and China are like, well, we don't really want to get involved, but oh my God. And they hem and haw for a little bit. And then all of a sudden they realize they have to get involved. And Kissinger tells Nixon, This is our Rhineland. This is where we must fight. And 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 so Nixon agrees to send the USS Enterprise, which is not Captain Kirk, which is actually our largest super air carrier, a carrier that uh, carries enough nuclear weapons to obliterate half the world. Uh, And it, it, it motors over from Vietnam because, by the way, we're still fighting in Vietnam. It motors all the way over there. And Indira Gandhi calls up her pals in the Kremlin and they send their Soviet uh, a nuclear subfleet that was based in Vladivostok, which actually somehow gets ahead of the care of the enterprise, and they draw a line in the ocean, a red line in the ocean, where where the orders from the Kremlin are: if the enterprise crosses this arbitrary line, vaporize it. Those are the orders, and then go radio silent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Not it's a very hunt for Red October here. And
0: yeah.
1: and the enterprise doesn't even know this is happening. And they're motoring forward. And in any good, you know, Soviet sub drama, in any good hunt for Red October, we have a we have a very wise Soviet naval commander here. Kruglyakov is his name, and he says, "Well, if they don't know, this guarantees World War III. So he orders his subs to do the most insane thing that a submarine can do, which is go to the line of control, the red line in the sea, with three subs, and they actually have some other assets in the area too, with three subs and surface right in front of the enterprise in a line (laughs) as the sign of saying, you know, they don't radio. There's like, here's where you stop. And they have um, obviously nuclear missiles on these subs and they can vaporize the enterprise. The enterprise has orders at that point to destroy the Indian air force and it can do it. It has the total ability. The first thing is going to destroy Indian communications air force. And it's going to launch nukes. And, and to be
0: clear too, Nixon is, he's like, you right that he's go. prepared to defend. He's, he's prepared to use nuclear weapons.
1: He is absolutely prepared to do that. Uh, and the orders are set and the surface, and the enterprise, a uh, guy named Tissot, um, who's the uh, captain, uh, stops the enterprise and they radio for orders. And it's, and Nixon's like, I guess we, you know, at this point, Cold War logic kicks in. And they're like, well, we have to do proportional responses, right? We can't we can't just go nuke a city because nuking a city would go World War Three. But what if we nuke a military asset? <laughs> what if we just kill the subs? What if we just kill this smaller thing? So they know that we mean business. This is classic Nixon and the the idea sort of goes through the pipeline. Now meanwhile, while all of this is happening in the Bay of Bengal, Indian forces and and rebels from the Bengali side have, you know, crossed over the border. They're 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 destroying the Pakistani resistance, which is really only built for genocide. They're not really ready for a full-on tank attack. And the Mukti Bahini, which is the freedom fighters of of Free Bangladesh because Bangladesh is get is being created as this front of military hardware crosses over the border. They get there and essentially the Indian forces take Dhaka. Indian and the Mukti Bahini together roll into Dhaka, and the radio messages from the U.S. embassy and other places go to Nixon, and they're like, we, you, "There's nothing to defend anymore. Like you lost." And then the Enterprise gets this order, well, I guess you can stand down because we haven't won this conflict. And so the only reason that you and I are alive is because these guys armed with Soviet weapons, right? The Soviet artillery, Soviet you know, made weapons, made it to Dhaka before Tissot or Krugliakov pressed the button and vaporized each other.
0: Yeah, that's and it's that's such a crazy story because I feel like. The the story that's kind of like we almost came to to the brink, like the story that that lots of people think about, is like uh, it's like right before the Bay of Pigs, like mm-hmm. there is an mm-hmm. the embargo on Cuba, and mm-hmm. Kennedy's like, we'll nuke him if we have to, and like the Soviets are prepared to launch, we're prepared to launch, and some Soviet there's like a PBS show I think right. uh, made about this event where like some Soviet submarine captain was like, we can't do that, we're not yeah. going to do that. Uh, and, like that's what I think about when I'm like, "Oh, yeah, Cold War almost brought us to the brink." But this story, equally as you know, it's not it's not serendipity, but you know, it it came very close to that for reasons that were really outside of the control of of many of the players,
1: yeah. I mean, once we have these systems of of fast war right A nuclear war has to be a fast war I and mean, now we're in like super hypersonic missile area right you don't you can't even think you almost have to have ai's to make the decisions that need to happen you know the presidents need to delegate control to the guy who's going to push the button who's in the place where they where the presidents have decided well this is where if it starts it's going to start here right and 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 all of a sudden some you know fleet a- some rear admiral has the fate of the world in, in, in their hands. And not only the rear admiral, but the the person, the rear admiral delegates to decide because the rear admiral is a little bit away from the conflict. Right. And it's just this person being like, okay, what do we do now? Do I end the world? Do I not end the world? And, and, it's so fascinating that this all begins with a storm right it's so fascinating that we we have this super interconnected world right now we have a world right now where a a ship goes sideways in the suez canal and the economy explodes right you're like oh my god it's and it takes years to sort out that problem and this level of globalization has many benefits of course but that hyper efficiency also makes you know taking a breath really really hard and and We now see events, you know, we are going to see a future where there's more and more storms. We are going to see a future where there's more and more climate problems, whatever those might be. However, they might show up droughts, fires, you know, floods, storms, you know, take your pick really. And and those things don't only land on coastlines and farmlands and, and, and things like that, but they land in political conflicts that already exist. And we could totally see, I mean, at that point, Bangladesh or East Pakistan was unknown. Like, who cares? East Pakistan, poor country, not much not, not much going on there. India wasn't really a big deal. It would, these were considered backwaters in general. And yet this random feeling, regional conflict could have ended the lives on the planet. So what happens now? You know, we had this storm just like a few months ago, you know, crisscrossing Africa, like I think it hit Madagascar like five times, like it, it, it crossed, it hit hit the coast of Africa, came back, hit Madagascar, came back, and like it just was devastating the, the area. If you had slightly different geopolitical concerns at that po- in that area, and the politicians were a particular breed of not nice, rational thinking person, we can see how these conflicts can spiral out of control from seemingly small Events. Um, You know, we're seeing this somewhat in Ukraine right now. Ukraine's not a climate war, obviously, but they're, you know, oh my God, we didn't really think much about Ukraine a few years ago. And now someone's threatening nuclear weapons. India and Pakistan have enormous nuclear arsenals right now. Um, Actually, in part because of this war, because Pakistan lost the war and Bangladesh got its freedom. The next move that Pakistan did was start its nuclear program, um, went to AK Khan and actually started, you know, enriching uranium of its own in order to get nuclear weapons because they realized they couldn't beat India in a conventional conflict. So in a way that the Pakistan-India nuclear conflict started also with a storm.
0: Yeah. And honestly, too, just kind of thinking about modern times and how these, these small events, I mean, this is kind of, this is me, you know. Amateur military professional saying this here, but you know think of like Taiwan like imagine like you know it's an island country. imagine like a you know a terrible cyclone or you know the sea's rising, and then China perceives that being a good time to invade Taiwan and then they invade Taiwan and America responds to them invading Taiwan totally. and you you start to see how just like something like that could trigger this this huge uh, global a conflict um, very similar to what you're writing about, uh, how it, you know, and that could have very easily gone the other way. Um, like you've said mm-hmm. a couple of times, we we might not be here right now. So that it is very frightening. Let's let's real quick close the loop on on Bangladesh and how Bangladesh becomes a country and and how the conflict
1: ends. Sure. Well, you know the Mukti Bahini and Indian forces. You know, liberate the the country. Meanwhile, um, a general called Niazi, who is a horrible human being, like basically running the concentration camps that are liquidating um, Bengalis. What he does in the in the hours right before liberation is he does an extra purge to be sure that he's gotten all of the intellectuals. He's be sure that he's gotten all of the bankers, all of the politicians, anyone who can run a country, basically the literati, uh, and he executes all as many as he can right before. And he also takes the treasury and dumps the treasury in the ocean, uh, so there's no gold, there's no money in Bangladesh. And then he, you know, surrenders and. And in doing that, Bangladesh gets its freedom, but it starts as basically a crippled country. Um, Mujib, who Sheikh Mujib, who is the George Washington figure, has been in prison this whole time. And he actually didn't even know the war was going on, which is, you know, he was kept in like solitary confinement for the year. Uh, and, and he's first flown to London, where he first sees a newspaper, and he is just, what? He has no idea what's going on. And he flies in and says, um, I guess we'll try to you know, he's president, right? They just say, you're president. And he, but he doesn't have any real connection to the, the on-the-ground fighting. And he tries to unify this country. And he's a pretty smart and inspiring guy. Uh, but also, America has lost the war, too. And so, they, 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 you know, Bangladesh starts off wounded. It goes immediately into a famine. And there's no food aid offered because America's like, we don't care just go die. And so, so the first thing that he deals with is a famine that, that now kills millions more people in his country. He has no government workers who are competent, who have background to run anything. And he's trying to create it, create sort of a free democratic, built on like liberal ideals. And he realizes he has to become a dictator or else he can't even run anything. Uh, and then, you know, what happens, happens. Bangladesh becomes a sort of corrupt dynasty, because one side doesn't like, you know, the, the people who disagreed with him didn't like that he was a dictator all of a sudden. Elections are rigged and, and we get a, a Bangladesh that really has like 40 years of horror uh, as it begins. and I mean, you know, we all think about Bangladesh and famines and how it's not very good. I mean, honestly, Bangladesh has done well considering where it started. Uh, there's also a series of assassinations. Um, Sheikh Mujib gets assassinated a few years after he's in office i think it's in 75 um he get the bangladesh is liberated in 72 so he has three years to do this he gets assassinated and then like all like the next few prime ministers all get assassinated and assassinations are not good for political stability right because it's one side sees their guy gets killed maybe they, they kill the other side's guy and it's this cyclical violence and 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 those dynasties still, to some degree, are in power even today. It's you know it's the Mujib side and the other side, and I think Bangladesh, I will say, has done admirable overall. Uh, like to today, it has a better per capita income than India. It is it is a rapidly industrializing, becoming a real player in the in the world. But it it started off hobbled, and there's also these theories that the CIA was involved in Mujib's assassination. You know, you can just imagine.
0: I wonder. In I know hindsight's twenty twenty, so this is this could be like a very hard uh, scenario for us to imagine here. But I wonder what things look like if this cyclone either just like doesn't hit, or if it, if it was much if it was a, a mild cyclone. How do you think things would be different?
1: Well, interestingly enough, it was a mild cyclone. It was it was a, a only a category four. It wasn't a category five. It just happened to hit during a moon high tide. So it, it just hit at the right moment for the storm surge to be insane. You know, I've asked this question of many people in Bangladesh, right? And there are two camps. One, one people will say, look, the, we were trending towards independence anyway, right? Like independence was on its way. We were, you know, there had been riots for years. There have been little resistance movements for years. And eventually Bangladesh would have become free. But that's not what happened. What happened was a storm hit, and that tr- that was the catalyst. Like it's it's always this question as history: if if things were different, they'd be different. But they weren't different. This was the way things happened, and this storm certainly was a catalyst because it flipped the election, and flipping the election led to the genocide. So, um, yeah, I don't know what how history would have panned out. Maybe it would have been more peaceful. There's an argument to say that it would have been more peaceful because they wouldn't have won the election that first time. But maybe that free and fair ideology might might have gotten a hold in Pakistan, maybe. And maybe the political process would have sorted out in a less contentious way. Because, you know, when the Democrats win 70 percent of the vote in America, the Republicans, if they're in power, may not feel great about that or may not feel great about their prospects if puerto rico was suddenly making decisions for montana montana might be like hmm right right yeah. well
0: i uh, i want so so we at the beginning of this we talked about kind of the structure of your book and how it 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 really gives a, a there's a human connection to each story that gets told to to paint this this picture of 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 Bangladesh in in the Bangladesh Liberation War, maybe you could just well. So for the listeners, each chapter is actually the name or names of people in the stories. I think even Richard Nixon gets his own chapter.
1: Oh, several, yeah,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Talk maybe just pick like a couple of those stories, and maybe you could just tell us a little bit about them and why they're important to this story.
1: So I think my favorite character is Hafezuddin Ahmad. I, I think other there are there are brilliant characters throughout. we have Hafezuddin who is the Pele of Pakistan who is a, a soccer enormous, player an enormous soccer player like so like everyone loves Hafez <clears throat> and he's and he's fighting and eventually he decides that because in America you know sports stars can make money but in, even in Bangladesh the Pele can't and he decides to become a ringer for the army team and 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 joins the army to play for their soccer team. <laughs> and uh and 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 he's playing against the Soviets and and you know Turkey and those in Iran. And then he so he's like sort of this like guy in the Bengali unit but really is like the pinch hitter for their just their sports stuff. And on the day that Operation Searchlight happens, he's just, you know, they're planning to kill his entire unit, but no one none of his people know this. And he wakes up one morning, and with the message, they have locked the armory, right? They have, they have, they have locked our armory and they're asking us to report. And Hafez is like, Hmm, that sounds odd. I wonder why. Cause he's like a junior officer. He's like their soccer store, but they gave him an officer assignment because he was college educated. So he walks over to the head of the Bengali unit, a guy named Jalil, and says, what's going on? Why are, why have they closed our armory? Meanwhile, the SPs, the, 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 Sort of the sepoys, the the privates of of the army, um, are breaking open their armory to get their own weapons because they have a feeling that shit's about to go down because they have more their ear to the ground. And Hafez is like, "Hmm, what's going on?" And his uh, Bengali officer says, "I can't take it. I don't know." And he just goes, "Um," is basically becomes useless, becomes inactive, starts crying at his desk. Hafez walks outside and sees some bullets firing. Looks back at his. Uh, at his officer says, well, this is bad. And then a, a private comes up to him and says, God comes up to Hafez and says, Hafez, we need a leader. Cause they're just shooting. We're just shooting randomly. Like we need an officer to actually tell us what to do. And Hafez has this moment where he's like, I was totally apolitical before this. Like he, I just want to play soccer. I want to be the soccer guy, but I guess I have to lead my men in revolution. And in this moment, he says, okay, we'll do this. We'll, we'll stage it." So he plans how to survive, because the cantonment has um, I think it's 1,500 soldiers and 500 Bengalis in it and every, and, and the Pakistanis are encircling them and encroaching them. And he plans a, you know, a fire and- move retreat out of the cantonment, and, you know, the only other Bengali officer who also was like, active at this moment gets shot on his way out. And Hafez doesn't know if he's leading a national thing. He might be the only military unit in all of East Pakistan that revolted. And he has no clue, but he flees with his men in his arms. It was like, I guess we're guerrillas now. That to me is like one of my favorite moments in this book because it really happened. I'm talking to Hefez, you know, a few years ago and, and we're getting this whole story. I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat. Um, Hefez learns shortly after he, he exits the cantonment that yes, there are people he needs to meet up with. He just doesn't know how to do it. And so that's sort of the beginning of this year-long resistance where, you know, India gets involved and all that. But the other character that I truly love is is Muhammad Hai. And we, we there's also American aid workers who are involved and there's lots of people. But um, Muhammad Hai is a farmer who is on one of the islands, an island called Manpura, which is going to be hit. He's a teenager and his Island gets wiped out. And so we follow him through that 20 foot sh- storm surge as his entire family drowns. And he's holding on to a one palm tree as that happens. And then he gets caught up in the aid movement. Like he's like, he's like his first mission is like, I need to bury my family and he buries 50 family members in his front yard. And from there he's like, well, we have to feed the people around us. So he, he, he starts a local aid movement, you know, just basically sharing resources from the survivors, which gets picked up by sort of the international aid movement, a woman named Candy Rohde and John Rohde, who are from Boston, who suddenly create the largest civilian uh, aid distribution effort in the history out of nothing, out of phone calls. And they, they, and while the army is not distributing aid because of this political pressure, uh, John and Candy Rohde actually save millions of lives. And Muhammad Hai is part of this, until the Pakistani government stops aid entirely and Muhammad Hai becomes a revolutionary. And so we see how he become from, from being an aid worker to, and aid is very interesting. It's like you have to get food from, you got you a food drop and then you move the food to the different resources. He uses those same skills to move arms around his island during the during the resistance. And, you know, he can't, personally fight against the Pakistani gunboats, but he can he can delay them. He can do little tiny actions that just 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 keep them on edge. And that's what he does for a year. Uh, and then his story has a very interesting twist at the end, which I, I won't tell you about, but but after liberation, things get real again.
0: Well, we've kind of touched on this throughout throughout our our interview so far. And frankly, this might be the first interview I've done where uh, this question probably can so easily be answered, but I'll ask you so we can put it into words. What lessons are you hoping people take away from your book?
1: There's so many actually. One is that in moments of crisis, you have choices and you have agency. Like right now, a lot of us feel like we don't have agency because we're like, well, climate change is coming and I can't do anything about it. But But climate change and all of these things hit the rubber, hits the road eventually. And the decisions that feel so opaque right now come into laser like focus when the rubber hits the road. And then you can suddenly, like, your actions can be good or evil, and you can just see them right in front of you. And I think that one of the lessons in climate change is that while we can do some preparations right now, and we absolutely should, the rubber will hit the road, and you will you know, probably be asked to take decisions that you were unfamiliar with beforehand, whenever that happens. And I also think that, you know, we need to be more aware of how political systems are affected by climate change in general. And this is just what's not talked about. Like if you, we look at the New York Times and the coverage on NPR and wherever else, we're always talking about these big environmental slow-moving, relatively slow-moving things. Oh, look, these beachfront properties are going away off of Miami. Oh, look, like we're going to have insurance losses. Oh, look, oh, there's going to be refugees and refugees are going to be hard. But we don't really conceive of what that actually means when the rubber hits the road. The dangers of climate change in my mind are not those factors. The dangers are how humans react to climate change. If we think the world is doomed because of climate change, it's not because we become Mad Max and everything in a desert convertible, you know, shooting each other in, you know, Burning Man-looking clothes. It's because we're going to start firing weapons at each other, right? And our weapons now are existential weapons. Like the, the danger of climate change is radiation and nuclear winter. It's not the slow heating of the globe.
0: Profound. Uh, wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, but this, I mean, but your whole book uh, is a very, it's a profound book and it's, you know, it's a cautionary tale, uh, kind of like we've talked about. Well, Scott, this has been a, a really great interview. What are you, what are you working on next?
1: Oh my God. I am. So again, it's really funny. I have a very diverse writing career. You know, I started by writing about organ trafficking. I've written a book on cults. It's called the Enlightenment Trap. It's out right now as well. Two books on biohacking. Um, this book about climate change and war. And I'm working on a book about napping right now. Um, I also have a YouTube channel uh, that where I pontificate on a wide variety of things, um, and uh, you know anything from consciousness to climate change to war to. AI, like it's really a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an ADD dilettante, um, you could say.
0: What's your secret to being so prolific as somebody who is a, a writer
1: myself? Oh, I, I, mean, I have no idea. Um, not, not a clue. ADD is really super useful in this, in this <laughs> idea. Um, I mean, not having another job helps. I mean, I've written six books, but I did it over thirteen years, so it's not that impressive. It's just sort of, I just do stuff. And I'm interested in a wide variety of things. And uh, yeah, what's the secret? I mean, I, writing a book is super easy. By the way, what you do is you make an outline, and then you write 500 words a day until you're done, and then you have a really bad book, and then you make it better. You edit it, and then boom, presto, that's book.
0: That's great inspiration for us all, Uh <laughs> or at least all of us uh, wannabe writers out here. Well, uh, Scott, if people want to uh, if people want to follow you, find you are you on social media how can how can people get in touch
1: i am in all of the places and i would love you to go check out my stuff you know if you want to know more about the like the bola cyclone i have a video on my youtube channel which i think is called scott carney on youtube you you can put it in the search bar and i'll show up sg carney on the twitters and the TikToks and the Instagrams and all of that stuff. Um, I have a newsletter, which is, um, I think it's probably the best way to sort of follow my stuff because I tell you what's new. And I, and I also have a podcast called Scott Carney Investigates. So I am all over the map. Um, You're everywhere, prob- man. Probably the newsletter is going to be how you how most people would follow me. And You can find that on my website, scottcarney.com. There's like a little annoying pop-up that will come every time you visit my website until you put your email address in, because that's, that's the game, Yes, <laughs>
0: Well, Scott Carney with Jason Mickley into too, let's not forget Jason here, on his new book. Well, it's actually, this is the new paperback edition, correct?
1: Yep, that's the paperback edition. It's based on the cover that was um, released in India, where obviously this book is quite popular in India because they're the yeah. heroes. Uh.
0: Well, it's uh, The Vortex, A True Story of History's Deadliest Storm, An Unspeakable War in Liberation. Uh, Go buy a copy. Go check it out from your library. It's a story worth reading. Uh, And Scott, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: 100%. Thank you for having me. Thanks.